as followers of Christ, I'm submitted to Christ, who's submitted to the Father. And because I'm submitted to Christ, my wife can submit to me. And I'm not better, but I'm in this role, not perfect, I'm a sinner. And so we can lead with humility. We can lead with the gospel saying, guys, I'm gonna blow it. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And today, uh, we are going to be focusing our attention on uh, a specific topic, and the topic today is husbands. And so uh, today we're going to look at uh, chapter 7, a portion of chapter 8, and next week we will conclude the Song of Solomon with the end of chapter 8 and a message for the wives. And so today is for the husband, uh, and next week is for the wife. Just buckle up, men. We're about to get into it. So uh, the as we open up this text... I want to read a poem from Josiah Gilbert Holland, a very timely poem, not just for husbands, but for all men uh, in the world today. He says, the title is God Give Us Men. God give us men a time like this demands, strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and ready hands, men whom the lust of office does not kill, men whom the spoils of office cannot buy, men who possess opinions and a will, men who have honor, men who will not lie men who can stand before a demagogue and condemn his treacherous flatteries without winking, tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and in private thinking. For while the rabble with their thumb-worn creeds, their large professions and their little deeds, mingle in selfish strife low, freedom weeps, wrong rules the land and waiting justice sleeps. God give us men. Now, this sermon today is for the man, for the husband, and I want to um, start today with a statement, and I believe there's very rare exceptions to this, but I believe the weight of responsibility in having a healthy marriage does not lie 50% with the husband and 50% with the wife. I believe the weight of responsibility lies with us as husbands. I believe we are called and we've said this in you know, some sermons that we've done recently, that we are called to be the high priests of our home and that we are to set the spiritual tone for our families. See, one of the seeming results of the fall was that the woman would desire in Genesis 3 to rule over her husband. It wasn't just that she would desire to have her husband, that she would desire to be the husband. And we see Adam allowing Eve to partake of the fruit while she was deceived. But in doing that, he didn't take the place of authority, of leadership, and of protection. And too many men today are willing to abdicate their responsibilities and just relax and ride shotgun while their wives drive the decisions and the spiritual quality of the relationship. We have a lot of Nabals You know what that that reference is from? It's from 1 Samuel 25 with this incredible, godly, intellectual, strong woman of God named Abigail who is married to Nabal, whose name means fool. And Nabal was not living a life 
of justice, righteousness, and holiness before God. And therefore, his name, fool, Nabal, means fool. He was living what his name ultimately was. And David eventually uh, sees God's justice done in his life. And so I want to speak to the men today. And I want it to be a little bit strong with you men because I love you and because you can handle it. They've said that women are uh, the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean that she is weaker in, in an inferior way. It means she's more delicate, like, kind of like fine china. Whereas men, we're kind of like maybe something like a thermos. We can be dropped on the ground. We can be bumped around. We can handle it. Uh, that's been said before. But we want to speak to the men today uh, and challenge us to be men. Now, as we get to chapter 7, you'll see right above chapter 7 in verse 6, 13, that the heading begins with he. And most commentators agree and make the case that this section, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, that we're going to look at today, takes place a long time after the honeymoon. We see Shulamith and Solomon now married ostensibly for a number of years, and it's springtime again. They have fallen more maturely and deeply in love, and now, as she looks ahead at the remainder of her days, she desires to move from the city and move from the palace where remember, she left Lebanon to come and be a part of Jerusalem. Now she wants to go back home. She wants to either take a short-term trip or a long-term trip and settle back into the countryside and the pasture and the villages where she grew up. And so she desires for her husband to speak publicly of his love for her and even display that affection publicly, even though it was socially inappropriate to do so. So in a word, Shulamith is secure. She's secure in her marriage and she's secure enough to communicate these deep, long-term wishes she's always had in their marriage to communicate that to her husband. But before she does, he, once again, for the last time, begins to praise her for her beauty. But as we're going to see, some things have changed with his communication style in chapter 7. So, husbands, if you're taking note, I pray you are. This is kind of that uh, ease. Uh, I'm, giving you, like, uh, I'm giving you an easy one here. This would be the time to take notes this morning. You have my permission to get your phone out and take notes. If you have a phone, you can join us on the Bible app or write this down. Take a picture of the screen if you want to. Uh, but I want to encourage us with three ways we can love our wives. Now, again, this is not exhaustive. There are many other passages in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, lots of other places in the New Testament and throughout the scripture. Uh, but from this text, here's three ways we can love our wives. Number one, we're going to see that we are to communicate our delight in our wife. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 9. So let's look at verse 1. This is he. He says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now notice with me, that he begins this time, back in chapter 4, he started with her eyes and worked his way down. Now he's beginning at her feet. And he says, you have beautiful feet. Now, typically feet in the um, agrarian society are going to be rough and scarred and anything but beautiful. They're not going to be post-pedicure, ladies. That, that is not the feet that you typically would have in this type of society. But notice that he says, your feet are in sandals. You're a noble daughter. So the daughter of a nobleman would typically wear sandals and they would have more beautiful feet. 
So he's pointing out uh, that she really does have a sandaled, supple uh, pair of feet. But then he moves his way up, and notice that he likes her rounded thighs, her bulging navel, and her soft belly. So apparently, maybe she has a bit of a pooch. We're not really sure. But he's saying, that's attractive to me. In a world where thin is in today, he is saying, I'm drawing attention to what I love about you. I love your soft lines, and I think that you're beautiful. Uh, Our culture today has a different standard, um, but he's saying, I want to enjoy your body as if I'm drinking wine directly from your stomach. And later she's going to invite him to do so. So notice that he begins moving up. Her body, verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Now, obviously, he's already compared her breasts to gazelles and fawns. And here, he again references her neck resembling an ivory tower. (laughs) I don't think that he's saying you have an awkwardly long white neck. I don't think that's what he's saying. I I believe he's saying you hold your head up high. When I look at you, you're you're confident. You have a beauty uh, that is observable and noticeable. Uh, We would typically not say to our wives, listen, honey, your neck, it is long like a tall tower. It reminds me of, you know, Freedom Tower in New York City. It's just, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it is um, something that um, exudes strength. And then he points out her nose. This is not a cut down. He's not saying you have, you have one of those noses that everyone notices. No, he's saying your nose is a defensive, strong place. So when I look at your nose, uh, I'm drawn to it. Uh, it is noticeable and it's beautiful. Notice with me how much more in detail he gets. This is a little bit of a miracle, everyone. A man is using poetry and simile and metaphor to describe his loved one. He's not just saying, "Uh, you're pretty, right? He's actually taking the time to bathe her in metaphor. Look at verse 5 with me. This is is kind of the, the crowning achievement here. He says, your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. And this is poetic and this is powerful. Remember, he's the king. He's saying, I am held captive in the locks of your hair. Uh, He says, your head is like Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was known for nobility as well as beauty. And guys, I don't think there's a more fitting picture that he could have used for a husband to use to communicate to his wife. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what, honey? I think that you're beautiful. You have one of the most captivating faces I've ever seen. But I also deeply respect you And I believe that you are a wife of noble character. When I look at you, I see beauty, but I also see someone who's crowned with nobility and you've captured my heart, my sister, my bride. This is a great picture. Um, One of my uh, favorite commentators says this. He says, the woman is not just an objectified body as in pornographic representations of the female form. The man also describes five elements of her upper body, neck, eyes, nose, head, and hair, to balance the five parts of her lower body, feet, thighs, navel, belly, breasts. He values her as a person, not just a sexual object. This woman of, or this image of womanly perfection is not a compliant plastic doll who exists to serve the man's every whim. On the contrary, she is a powerful and strong person, a masterpiece of God's 
handiwork. In the first service, everyone amen that. Husbands, can you amen that? So notice that he gets lost in her hair. He gets lost in her hair. So husbands, as your wife takes, she says it's going to be five minutes. I'm just going to do my hair. It's going to take five minutes. We all know that's 45 minutes, okay? Let her do her thing, right? He's appreciating her hair. But he says her flowing locks are like purple. Now, in that day, purple dye was one of the most expensive dyes in antiquity. And I didn't know this, but you had to extract it from the shells of sea snails. And this is a very expensive, very lengthy, very complicated, long process. And for that reason, really only royalty or the very wealthy had the means of purchasing purple. And so when you look in scripture and you see purple, you just you have to think wealth or royalty, regality. And so what he's saying is, I'm held captive by your beauty and by something that is desirable. In this case, your hair. Honey, your hair looks epic. You've changed your hairstyle, and I love it. Uh, now look at the rest of his description. Love, verse 6. You've got to camp out in verse 6 as a husband. This would be one of those that you want to communicate often to your wife. He says in verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Notice that he's saying, you are loved. I'm communicating that you are loved by me. You are a loved one, and you are delightful, you are beautiful, you are pleasant. Then he says in verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Okay, so uh, here he compares her to a palm tree. What does that mean? Well, she's tall, she's graceful, she's resilient, and she's exotic. And apparently he, and he's on a fruit diet. He uh, wants to enjoy the clusters of palms that are her breasts. But notice that he doesn't just stay there. He doesn't just keep droning on about that. He immediately tactfully points out about uh, her breath. He says, your breath, it's important. Uh, your mouth is like expensive and pleasurable wine. He's not being crass. He's not being crude. He's not being inappropriate. He's not going up and grabbing her by the backside and being kind of silly and foolish. What is he doing here? He's warming her up. He is taking his time to express his gratitude for her. And as a woman, she appreciates that. Now, now compare this, not now, but later, a little of an assignment. Go back and read chapter 4. If you line up chapter 4 and chapter 7 and compare the two, what he says on his wedding night in chapter 4 versus here in chapter 7, he has matured deeply in his communication. So this description is much more in-depth, it's much more mature, it's much more methodically laid out about her, her whole being. He's grown to love and appreciate so much more about her than merely her physical attributes. I love verse 6, where he doesn't just camp out on her breasts anymore. He says, no, how beautiful and pleasant you are. Not just your body, but you, oh loved one, with all your delights, your character, your personality, your companionship, your friendship. The decisions we've made together as a couple, I delight in you, and you're beautiful and pleasant. Now, as husbands, we must communicate our delight in our wife. And this praise needs to be particular, it needs to be uh, uh, physical, and it needs to be personal. Solomon is not just kind of quickly telling her all of this so that he can get back in bed with her. In fact, this doesn't even contextually seem to just be private. It seems like he's publicly displaying how much he loves and appreciates her. 
And, and it does greatly impact her because when he says, I would love to enjoy wine from your navel, she about, is about to respond essentially with, okay, yes, please drink up. I, I am happy about this. She is appreciating his slow advances. You don't need to nod your head, ladies. But wives appreciate slow advances. She's not looking for the aggressive gazelle hunter. If you remember previous sermons, she's not looking for that. She wants him, as most wives do, to spend the day working on his romance. And it's okay to acknowledge today that men and women, as much as culture wants to blur this, men and women are very different. They're very different sexually. You can amen that. Um, So there are different ways that we operate in our intimacy. If we were to sum up uh, sexuality for men and sexuality for women and put it into a computer... Uh, and try to use a button, this is typically what on the screen we would see. Men, typically, it just doesn't take much. Just flip the switch. We're ready to go. Let's do this. Women, oh my goodness, I don't know where to get started. There's dials and I don't know where to go. Uh, Now, if we were to take our, um, our sex life and we were to say, okay, this is what we would do if we were to put this into an appliance in the kitchen. I'll put it on the screen. Which one do you think is the man? Which one do you think is the woman? We, as men, are typically like a microwave. You just put the, put the food in, hit the button, we're ready to go. Let's go. Let's do this. Whereas uh, it's not going to be a few seconds. <laughs> it's not going to be a few minutes. It's not going to be It's going to be all day. You've got to slow cook that crock pot all day long. Husbands, we need to communicate our delight in our wives outside of the bedroom and without expecting intimacy. Well, I said you're pretty, so we should be intimate tonight. We, we have to communicate our delight in our wives in a variety of ways. So maybe it's writing her notes. Maybe it's sneaking a little thank you card in her purse. Maybe it's bringing her flowers home from work just because. And when she says, why did you do that? Say, I've got a verse for you. Song of Solomon 7, verse 6, and then read the verse out loud. But we need to communicate our love and our delight in our wives. However, It goes deeper than just talk, okay? So let's look at the second idea, which is that we as husbands loving our wives need to cultivate a righteous environment of acceptance, assurance, and even adventure. Let's unpack that and see what I'm referring to. Look at the rest of verse nine. This is her now. She, he talked about her uh, mouth being like the best wine, and she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. In other words, bring it on. And so then she says, look at this, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Notice what she asked for now. Let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. One commentator says this. I love this. They say there is a primeval Edenic purity about all of this. In other words, this is a callback to Eden. They say once again, we are reminded of that first couple that God gave to each other and commanded to be one flesh. We cannot keep from thinking of that context when she speaks of his desire for her. It is as if we are observing the fall momentarily reversed. You see, she says here that I am my beloved's. His desire is for me. 
He doesn't have eyes for anyone else. His desire is for me. And not only that, but at the end of verse 13, she says, listen, I have stored away some things. I've made some investments in our marriage for the future. And in the middle of those two verses, we have this request of hers where she lets her guard down and says, listen, I know that you've taken me away from Lebanon to live in the palace, in the city, but honey, I desire to move back home. Some commentators disagree. Is this forever? Is this temporary? Is this permanent? She says, I want to go back to the rolling countryside. I don't want to go back to the hills, back to the pasture. I want to get out of the city and go to the country. I don't know if you catch this, but she is absolutely secure in their relationship. She knows that she belongs to him, and so she shares a deep desire about moving away from home. What has happened here? He has fostered an environment in his home of acceptance uh, and where she feels the freedom to initiate something without it coming across out of place. He has given her the freedom to be at peace and herself around him. You juxtapose that to Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, where he goes out in foolishness to strike down and to mock David. And then Abigail has to work around her husband because of his foolish decision. She has to kind of sneak around his authority. That's not what she's doing here. He's created an environment where it's righteous, where she's accepted, where she's assured of their um, relationship. And it's even an adventure. And I would say in their marriage, uh, essentially she has found it to be a place where I don't have to wonder. I don't have to wonder if he's not going to keep a job. I don't have to wonder if he's going to be unfaithful to me. I don't have to wake up the next morning and wonder is he going to leave me and the kids? I can, I can be myself and I can have a place of acceptance, assurance, and even adventure. Listen, husbands, if your home is a place of criticism, if it's a place of belittling, fear, narcissism, discord, drudgery, that isn't your wife's fault, it's your fault. God placed Adam in the garden with his helpmate and God commanded him to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate it. And that's what we're to do as husbands. We're to take the ground that we've been given and we're to cultivate that ground. We're to make something fruitful come from what we've been given. And you say, no, 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 (laughs) pastor, you don't understand what I've been given. I have been given thorns and thistles. (laughs) My garden is a bunch of weeds. Uh, I would say, okay, well, then I would say you need to work the ground that much harder to cultivate fruit out of the weeds and thorns and thistles. Our job is to create a righteous environment in our homes, a place where our wives are assured of our love for them, where they're accepted for who they are, and we draw them to deeper intimacy with Christ, where we follow the Lord, and following the Lord sometimes seems like an adventure. We're going to take the step of faith. It makes no sense, but God is in this. Let's trust him. Let's obey his word, even though it's countercultural. It goes against everything that the world is saying. Let's do this. Let's pursue him together. You see, one of the ways that we cultivate a righteous environment is to wash our wives in the water of God's word. I want to ask you men a question. Is it a foreign thing if I were to walk into your home and I were just to look around and just begin to praise the Lord out loud? Is that a foreign thing? Would it be a foreign thing if I came over and said, hey, bro, let's sit down and let's just open the scripture together. Let's just, let's just spend time reflecting on the gospel. Let's just take some time and, and worship Jesus. Let's sing the scripture. Let's memorize the scripture. Let's meditate on the scripture. Let's talk about the goodness of God. You see, if there's anything we can do to grow in our leadership and our homes, 
It's for all of us. And I say us, including us as pastors and as leaders, for all of us to consider how we can fill our homes with an appreciation and a dependence upon the word of God. Now, in verse 13, Shulameth brings up mandrakes. Uh, Now, why does she do that? Um, Mandrakes are a very interesting plant that give off a, a very strong fragrance, and they were incorrectly known in ancient Hebrew circles as a folk remedy. And supposedly... Uh, erroneously, people thought these will help barren women to conceive a child. And for that reason, they started becoming synonymous with sexual activity. So your assignment this week, go back and read Genesis 30 and see how Leah and Jacob and Rachel were kind of misunderstanding the use of mandrakes. Here's what John MacArthur says, very clear about this. He says, they, mandrakes, were superstitiously viewed in the ancient world as love apples, as an aphrodisiac or fertility-inducing narcotic. He says, the odd and desperate bargain by Rachel was an attempt to become pregnant with the aid of the mandrakes, a fable which failed to understand that God is the one who gives children. Uh, So mandrakes, here, why does she bring it up? Essentially, she's saying, I I hope, and I've stored this up, I'm praying that we will have a a fruitful quiver of children one day. Uh, So in this marriage, I'm hoping that one day we'll begin to have children. Uh, But either way, he is cultivating a righteous environment where she's accepted, she's assured of their love, and she's willing to join him and even encourage him to take steps of faith on this adventure. Now, in chapter 8, you turn the page to chapter 8, and it it turns kind of a a strange corner at first glance. But we need to read it and understand it. So look at verses 1 through 4, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. She says, oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, I know some of you read ahead, and that's a good and faithful practice for all of us to do. We know where we'll be next week. It'll be chapter 8, verse 5 through 14. So some of you have read ahead this week. Good job. But you had a perplexing moment where you read, wait a minute, hold on. What is she saying here? Oh, that you were like a brother to me. This is not speaking about incest. What's happening here is she's not wishing that he was actually her brother. What she is asking for is she's wishing for the liberty in public that brothers and sisters had in that day. So publicly, you could kiss your brother, you could kiss your cousin or your kin in front of others, and no one would question it. You just go up and and kiss your kin, it was a normal thing. But for a woman to go up to her husband and have a public display of affection like that, the Proverbs liken that to a brazen harlot. And so it was obviously not uh, something in ancient Israel that was to be done. So what she's saying is, she's saying, don't miss this. She's saying, hey, our relationship has great intimacy behind closed doors, but I am ready for that to be displayed to the world. I don't want to just be hidden away privately. I want my family, my friends, I want the people around us to share in this relationship that we have. In verse 2, she says, I I want to bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to teach me, she trained me up. I want you to meet my mom. I want you to be around her. And I uh, would uh, even be 
uh, encouraging our intimacy, and I, I actually would seek the approval of my family. And so husbands, don't miss this last point and how we can love our wives from this text. Number three, I want to encourage us to connect her, your wife, back to her family and others. Here, she asks uh, that he would be like a brother and says, you know, I want to bring you back to the house of my mother. I want you around my family and my friends. And sadly, I've heard about some husbands who believe that you should be married privately. Like, you know, it's just you and me, and we've done this ceremony without any witnesses, without the government, and it's just you. We're married in our hearts. And so that's as good as being truly married. And, and the Bible gives no such suggestion. We are to stand before God. We're to stand before witnesses. And listen, we're to get married and not cut off our family members. Does the Bible say we leave father and mother? Yes, but it doesn't say we cut off father and mother. In other words, our wife needs to be connected back to her mom if she has a mom, to her dad if she has a dad, to her family members, to her friends. To keep her from that is more than detrimental, it's unloving. And I hear about some husbands who get married and suddenly they disconnect from, from all social life. And, and the, the world has a psychological term like codependence. Co -dependence. And I don't love that, for, that word, but this idea is that we just, are, we just need each other and we don't need anyone else and everyone else is disconnected from them and they're only alone, isolated. And that's not the idea here. The idea is that the people around you could come around you and encourage you, that you have people to call on, that your family, as hard as this is as an uphill battle sometimes, and a lot of times family, unbelieving especially, will not maybe like your spouse, it's not about liking, it's about um, being around them and including them. So I want to encourage us as husbands that we don't take our wives, run off, cut everyone off, especially the church, that we're connected to uh, the people of God. It's so important for us. Now, as we close, I, I want to just maybe introduce the elephant in the room. We as husbands need to acknowledge today that we fall short of the glory of God. That you and I as husbands, you can amen this, we are going to fail in every point as a husband. We're going to fail. Okay, so can we just for a minute, we did this in the early service. If your wife is here, would you just um, make eye contact with her for a minute? And would you just look at her and just say, I'm sorry, dear. Just go ahead and do that. I'm sorry, dear. I fall short of God's glory. Please forgive me. I love you. And I'm working on it. Listen, we fall short of the glory. Your wife agrees before you even said it, by the way. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I know. She knew it before you asked it. Listen, let me just make this really clear. There is only one perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is perfect and without sin. Only Jesus perfectly presents his bride back to himself as radiant and washes us through the water of his word. Only Jesus has perfect love for his bride, the church. A love that fully lays down his life to take our place and satisfy the wrath of God that we deserve. Husbands, we're going to absolutely blow it. In fact, I just said that we should wash our families in the word of God. So we make so many mistakes. So I don't know if you've done this, but we, we, we sit our kids down like, okay, yeah, the pastor's right. We're going to have family devos. Let's do this, guys. And so we sit the kids down and we go, all right, it's time to, we're going to, you guys need to read. We're going to read Cain and Abel because you guys keep killing me and killing each other. And so we're going to do this. So you sit your kids down and you start preaching at them 
And it seems like as soon as you open the Bible as a dad in the home, there's napalm that goes off in the room. Am I right? You walk in, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, everyone's distracted. It's like, oh, man, something's going on in here. The dog is suddenly attractive to everyone. The phone rings, the doorbell, the door, knock at the door. Um, everyone's got to check social media. It's like, my goodness, what just happened? Uh, or, or worse, you, you go, you know, yeah, I need to wash my wife in the Word. So you go, okay, honey, I have my pulpit with me. So here you go, sit down right here, front row, take notes, ready for this. Honey, you need to love your wife, uh, or no, you need to submit to your husband. And so well, I get it, I get it. We try our best and we fall short. We try our best to even implement what we're talking about today. Husbands, let me just encourage you. You're already a failure. It's okay. You are. I'm a failure. You're a failure. But in Christ, he welcomes his bride, and he is the perfect bridegroom. And so you and I can just admit, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm saved by God's grace. And it's not that I'm the better person in this marriage, so that's why I'm the leader of the home. It's not that men are way more capable. That's why they're the leader in the church. In the church and in the home, God has put men in that role of leadership. Why? because of the order of submitting to Christ and Christ submitting to the Father. Jesus, though equal with the Father, he willingly subordinates himself to the Father, though he's not less in any degree. But because of the priority and the function, he lowers himself and became obedient to death. And so we can say, as followers of Christ, I'm submitted to Christ, who's submitted to the Father. And because I'm submitted to Christ, my wife can submit to me. And I'm not better, but I'm in this role not perfect, I'm a sinner. And so we can lead with humility. We can lead with the gospel saying, guys, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to make huge mistakes. Uh, and one of the best things we can do as a husband is just admit that. Instead of trying to lead from sinless perfection, we're not Christ. But we can lead from a place of confessing our sins, repenting, and being honest with our family, saying, guys, I'm going to blow it constantly. Forgive me. Help me to point you guys back to the gospel that reconciles us to a holy God. And so this morning, though we all fall short as husbands, let's consider how Jesus loves his church with those three points we just discussed. So first, Jesus communicates his delight in his bride. Just think about this. One commentator says, if the song, Song of Solomon, has any allegorical significance, then this section should indicate that God finds us much more delightful than we find him. How can this be? If this seems strange, it should be remembered that his love is pure and eternal. His capacity for love and joy is greater than ours, even though the object of our affection is greater and infinitely more worthy. Isn't that amazing? God communicates his delight in his people. Well, secondly, Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, cultivates a righteous environment where we are accepted, assured, and knowing him can certainly be described as an adventure. There is nothing under the sun that compares to being saved from your sin and to be in a right relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, do you know, are you assured of your salvation? Do you know that you're accepted, not because you are a perfect, but because of his perfect work? That, that knowing him and following him uh, is the most exciting thing that we could ever experience. Well, finally, when we come to Christ, he doesn't cut us off from others and say, now it's time to live as a hermit. No, when we're joined to Christ, we're immediately connected to a community where we're loved and valued and supported and equipped. The family of God. United not by a family bloodline, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We'll close with the thought from John Piper where he says, let this thought govern your life. Jesus Christ came to betroth the people to himself at the price of his own blood. I'm a part, or if I'm a part of that betrothed people by faith in Jesus, he will come to me and all who believe in him and say, come, O faithful bride, enter into my gardens and into my chambers and learn now for eternity what the dim shadows of earthly pleasures were all about. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for the great grace that we just sang about, the fact that our sins are forgiven, the fact that you see us as a radiant bride. We see ourselves and we don't agree. At times we are blemished and we are full of sin and depravity and nothing in us would draw you to us and yet you speak words of love, words of delight over us. Thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you that you have cultivated within our hearts, within the church, a righteous environment where we are accepted into the beloved. And so we today sing not for that acceptance, but from the place of acceptance, from that place of sonship, from that place of being the beloveds. We know that it's not by our works that makes us beloved, but because we are beloved, we desire to live a life of good works that are pleasing to you. So Lord, thank you that we have that in Christ. And thank you that you unite us to the church, to a family that allows us to be equipped and loved and accepted. Father, I pray for everyone here today that we would be the bride of Christ, that we would rise up and be the church that you died for, especially in these dark days, how, uh, how needy the time is for us to stand up and to exalt Christ, to speak the name of Jesus and to live out your commands. Father, we thank you for your grace. Today, I pray that we would be a radiant bride singing your truth. We love you, and we thank you for every husband here today. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged, equipped, maybe, maybe chastened a bit, challenged a bit, uh, to live a holy life and to wash our families in your word. We know that we're going to fall short, but we thank you that there's grace to cover our sin. So, Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we stand now with joy as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.